Hey guys, and welcome back to another solo podcast. This is Solo17. Thank you very much for listening in and watching again, if you're on YouTube or on iTunes, SoundCloud, whatever. Really appreciate the support. I appreciate definitely the last the last episode got a huge hit, whether or not it was like a clickbaity title with the will I stay natty kind of thing, uh, which I try not to do. Like I actually did answer that question in the podcast, but whether or not it was it was that or whatever, I really do appreciate the support, guys. And again, some fantastic questions coming from Instagram this week. So we're obviously going to get into those. I hope you are all well. So as always, we'll start with a little bit of an update from myself. So I am all good. I have had a fairly busy sort of front end of this week and back end of last week. So I went down to Brighton to see my dad. We spent the weekend together. Uh, we went to see some motorsport, the British touring cars, if anyone enjoys motorsport. Um, some some of you may well know that from the age of about eight years old, I was racing in motorsport. I was racing carts all around the UK until I was about 16 years old. Um, so the goal for me was actually to get into motorsport and compete in motorsport when I was when I was older, but obviously money is a big factor in the sport, and that was a limiting factor in my progression there, which some of you may know about, so I won't go into too much detail on that. But nevertheless, we saw some motorsport, which was awesome. Um, first round of the touring cars was wicked, and then I spent Monday in Brighton as well, and I trained with Jack Piad, um, one of my closest friends, and most probably the the guy that's seen me progress the most. We, we just... We were like, it was really nice to spend some proper time with him because it's been a long time since we like spent more than just a training session or bumping into each other at a seminar or whatever. It's been a long time since we spent some good time together. And, you know, Jack's one of those friends that like when you spend a decent amount of time with him and, you know, you just basically, one of those friends where you just click with again super fast and it was so nice to spend some good time with him. Um, I miss that guy a lot when I'm away or when I'm living at what I call home now. So it's really nice to spend some good time with him and I'm sure again later in the year at some point I'll go down and we'll get, like, get a full pushable legs or even a week of training in the books together because that was just really, really fun. So that was that and then I obviously travelled back up to Brum. Since being back, I've gotten some really, really good sessions. So push is going well at the moment, managing to eke out a little bit more progression on that hammer strength incline. And my high incline dumbbell press is going well as well. And obviously yesterday I hit legs. And the return of the high bar squat, which I haven't done in quite a long time. Obviously, I, I did it for the first time a, bit, a couple of weeks back uh, when I came into my new meso. It's feeling really, really good. And again, I, I covered my rationale on sort of well, I covered my rationale a little bit on the high bar squat, but I covered my rationale on higher rep quad training in a recent Instagram post. My thoughts on just like the fact that the quads do respond fairly well and it's obviously a fairly safe way of getting in really a, a lot of effective volume for the quads with some higher rep back offsets that if you haven't got good at them, that could be a new novel stimulus to get pretty damn good at. And a lot of people that I see doing these sets, you know, above even 20 reps tend to have pretty damn good quads, whether it's leg pressing, hack squatting, even barbell back squatting. I mean, the, the safest way to do 20 rep plus sets would be on a leg press or a hack as opposed to a barbell back squat because there's less that can go wrong. But anyway, let's crack into the questions. And yeah, other than that sort of body weight physique wise as well, I'm at like 180. I weighed in last... 
So I'm not weighing in every single day. I weighed in when I got back from Brighton. I was 186.8. So I'm foreseeing that I'm going to be able to get to 190 uh, probably by the end of April, early May. And then I'm pretty sure that I'll either hold 190 depending on how it feels, how my performance is, how my digestion is. I've noticed a, a little bit of a shift in my appetite in a negative way recently. Like it's gone down quite significantly. Um, and I've run into a, just a few very minor digestive issues, which I'm I'm not putting down to food. I'm putting down to actually just the the quantity and the time that I've like the the, the, the length of time that I've been eating these calories. So I'll, I'll try and work around that as much as I can to to get any more advantageous body weight on. But I don't think anything above 190 is going to be advantageous for me. I think that's going to be basically the the, the limit for this push-up. And then, like I said, I'll either maintain based on a few variables or I will diet down. Um, and it won't be a long diet. It will be a mini diet. And that will be getting probably anywhere between 15 and 18 pounds off as quickly as I can um, with, with, with efficiency as well. So you can... Look forward to following that phase and that cleanup phase, which will be the first cleanup that I've done since ooh, I started my last cleanup August 2nd of last year. So yes, that'll be exciting to follow. Anyway, let's crack into the questions. So first question, uh, what made you switch from one-to-one coaching to online coaching? Um, so basically when I was in PT, I was in uh, the PT world or industry for like two and a half years so I, I started off as just basically like gym instructor style of things and then I slowly transitioned into actually like a role within a semi-private uh, PT studio called the performance project which was great and I loved that for the period that I was there I didn't ever like not massively enjoy it or anything like that it wasn't really an issue of not enjoying it that much it was an issue of like I wasn't ever able to maximize what I was doing. I wasn't able to have a set training time. Uh, my training time was always all over the place. I sometimes had to push workouts back. And essentially I was, I, I love putting other people first, but I was putting a lot of other people first before myself every single day. Like I was waking up way too early, going to bed way too late. And I, I knew that this wasn't going to be a thing that I could keep up forever. Um, unless I wanted to drop my hours and that meant less money and I was and I've always been this way even with online work I'm like a yes guy so I'll just keep saying yes and that's shot me in the foot a few times with regards to biting off more than I can chew when it comes to online work but also biting off more than I can chew when it comes to like the one-to-one side so my days were just ridiculous and I have some clients like this that I coach that are personal trainers that just don't put themselves first enough so if, if you're watching this and you're thinking like, you know, you're thinking you're weighing up the pros and cons of continuing to grow your one-to-one base, realize that there is a cap, you know, there, there's a ceiling to the amount of one-to-one work you can do. Why? Because, I mean, there's even a ceiling to the amount of online work you can do, but there's, you can't make an hour PT any more efficient than an hour PT. Like that hour is an hour. It always stays an hour. But what you can do with online is you can try and shift in and out things to make things slightly more efficient. So you can make the check-in processes still very high quality, but more efficient. Um, you know, for me, I've, I've done so many things over the years that have made my processes a lot more efficient than they were when I initially started. 
And that just takes time. And that takes the ability to understand, okay, what was working and uh, can this work any better? Uh, could I do this differently? Could I do that differently? But realize that there is a, a ceiling with one-to-one to, -one to, uh, uh, to, to basically you, you cap your ability to like use your time. So that was the main thing. And then again, towards the end, I realized that I really wanted to coach uh, bodybuilders to the stage. So physique athletes, I wanted to coach them primarily. I didn't want to just do one-to-one -one PT sessions and coach general population all the time. So I, I still love that. And when I get like occasionally a, a general population online inquiry, I, I, I like taking it on because it's a bit of a different challenge. And especially if it's like, you know, a larger weight loss, it's something that, that's pretty fucking cool you know, like pulling 50 pounds off someone is bloody awesome. Like I've seen, you know, I one of my one-to-one -one personal training transformations was like 60 pounds of body weight. And that's just crazy. And like seeing the effect that that has on their life, their confidence, like everything is just a fantastic process. So I do miss one-to-one. -one. And obviously one-to-one, -one, you see people, you know, as much as I do the video check-ins, which are great and they're, they're lovely and they're, they're fun. I don't see people, you know, I don't I don't see people or chat to people one-to-one. -one. I get the occasional time where I go and see a client, train with a client, whatever, that's fun, it's lovely, but I don't see them every week, you know. How, how many of your good friends do you, do you even see every week, you know? So there's a, there's a big difference, like, if you go into the online world, just prepare to be a little bit lonely, especially if you're not, like, for me, the first year of me, year and a half, actually, of me going fully online, like, I didn't have a relationship, um, I didn't have a girlfriend, it was just like me at home working away on my windowsill and that was it. I literally, literally working on my windowsill with a, like a, la a laptop razor thing or even some boxes of Jacob's crackers to bring my laptop up a little bit. And that's literally where I made built, built my business on the windowsill of my bedroom, you know. So it's, it's a bit of a fucking lonely job to be fair because you don't really have anyone to speak to. Um, so yeah, just be prepared for that when you make the change. I, I transition nice and slowly. So yeah, and that'll be that'll be that'll be good for you, man. Like even if you build up a few, that'll be really really good. So George, thanks for your question. Let's move on to the next. So the next question is from Dylan, and it's asking how do you implement allergen needs in a meal plan? So gluten or lactose intolerance. So in terms of meal plans, I don't really give meal plans with plans with foods so i don't really say oh, okay you have to eat this for meal one you have to eat this for meal two meal three meal four etc etc but what i do do is i give out basically like i guess what i'd call it is a composition based diet plan so it will say what i want in meal one what i want in meal two what i want peri workout what i want in meal four meal five depending on when they train etc etc i don't do this for everyone you know most people can most of my clients are very well educated so they know how to situate their Nutrition over the course of the day to make it efficient and make it match the goal, whether it be fat loss, muscle gain, whatever, whatever phase we're in. And I'll be very heavily focused in my check-ins to educate them on the process of, okay, why, why, like, where are we pulling carbs from? If we're pulling 25 grams of carbs from the diet this week, 200 calories, where are we going to pull that from? Are we going to pull that from the pre-meal, post-meal, morning meal, whatever? I'll look at their MyFitnessPal if I need and I'll start to pull food or, or tell them where to pull food from to make their diet as efficient as we possibly can. So 
I don't really set meal plans with specific foods. And this is partially for this reason, Dylan. The thing is, a lot of people have foods they don't like. A lot of people that have foods that they're intolerant to. A lot of people have foods they don't agree with. And this is why I think leaving the decision up to your client is actually a pretty pivotal way to make sure that there's not only adherence, but there's also optimality in terms of food choices, not disrupting digestion, because you'll get some fucking workhorses like that will just follow anything you set. So if you say you have to eat this, they will just eat it. And even if their digestion is going like literally to shit, literally, they will continue to eat it because that, that's what they've been told and they're just like a robot. I, I know people that would do that. I know clients of mine that would do that. So for me, I don't give specific foods. And if anything, I think there's actually a limitation on what we can do as online coaches with regards to telling people what to eat. I mean, ultimately, it is the choice of the client for them to control what's going in their mouth. Like, that's a given. But I think, actually, there is some degree of, of ruling between what we can do in terms of, like, meal plans. Um, and I think that a lot of some of the things that you can do with meal plans are more down to what, like, you'd have to be a qualified dietitian or nutritionist to be able to do that, um, to be able to actually dictate a meal plan for someone, like, with specific foods. So I veer away from that. I just give composition-based diets um, or even just guidelines. I don't even like to say that they're set in stone because ultimately what underpins fat loss? You know, being in a, in a controlled or regular caloric deficit, what underpins muscle gain or grounds for muscle gain? Being in a controlled and consistent caloric surplus, right? So the, the pivotalness of the food choices really revolves around preference and digestion. I'd say digestion over preference. So if you're not digesting something or you're allergic to it, you're obviously not having it in your diet. Just don't have it in your diet. Bottom line. So that's my answer to that question, Dylan. So next question. Let's go on to Blair's question. Favorite movement to train? That's an interesting question. I have a lot of enjoyable movements in my training program at the moment. I'd say the one that I'm looking forward to the most, if I had heavier dumbbells, it would probably be the dumbbell RDL. I just feel like I can like absolutely rinse that movement. So when I can get heavier dumbbells, I'll probably like try and just go for a hundred kilo dumbbell RDL at some point. I know that Strength Asylum have some hundred kilo dumbbells, but they're really fucking long. And like, I know that it's just going to be very hard to do them. I think the only time I might be able to do a hundred kilo dumbbell RDL is when I next go to like Das Gym or something. Cause I know their hundred kilos are, are fairly small and compact, but that's one of my favorites. I think besides that, it's probably when I'm at Cuba's gym, um, Cuba's and Borean's gym, Ultraflex, And I use the Atlantis hack. I think it's just amazing. Like, I don't care about the amount of load that you can put on. Obviously, the amount of load you can put on makes you feel like a, an animal. But I think the main thing is just how how safe it feels, how comfortable it feels. And I think, honestly, I will, when I get to that point where I'm training there full time, I'll have one leg rotation with that hack and one leg rotation with the pivot leg press as my main movements. And that's it. And then I may do the pendulum secondary and the V-squat secondary on another day. And I probably won't do a barbell free weight squat because those movements are just so good and I can stay so safe um, and, and veer away from potential injury. But knowing me, I'll probably still squat, especially in that environment where there's a lot of power, power lifters in there. But that's probably one of my favorite movements. 
at the moment is that Atlantis hack. Hacks in general for me feel really good. I feel really, really safe and I feel like I get a lot of bang for my buck out of them. So those are definitely some of my favorite movements. So next question, opinion on hits versus steps for cardio. So they're very, 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 very different tools for caloric expenditure. Very different. Now, obviously, hits is one of those tools that I think has uh, numerous benefits in terms of what it can help achieve. Uh, and obviously steps, in my opinion as well, provide benefit in certain situations. So I think there's a ceiling for steps because beyond a certain degree, you're going to really take away from your the cosmetic look of your quads, but also you're going to take away from, uh, well, this is going to affect the cosmetic look as well, but you're going to take away from your ability to retain strength on the quads quite significantly with the with the steps because let's say you're doing 25,000 30,000 steps a day the realism of you being fairly strong in a leg session after that after you've been on your feet literally all day is very low so for me <clears throat> steps have probably an upper threshold in most people of 15,000 unless you're doing like steps for what you do for work or your PT I don't think we should shoot steps much higher than 15k I know for a I know for a fact I probably won't go above 15,000 steps in my next prep. I just don't think that it's going to be something that's going to be beneficial for the look of my quads. In terms of um, what they they benefit you over doing hit because obviously they're very low impact. Their recovery from them is, is much less than hit. You're not creating as much of a, a, a recovery curve from them. So I think that they can be used adequately to create an initial caloric deficit through expenditure so obviously when we're initially getting into the the first part of the deficit we can start to increase steps a little bit for a little bit of an increasing activity and obviously we can pull food a little bit so that's what i'd do initially in the start of a prep <clears throat> then later on hit plays a role now i did hit i did hit on the assault bike which is fucking brutal it's one of those bikes air bikes um which has the handles like so you're going like this and it's like a cross trainer handles and also you're pedaling like fuck um so i did five rounds at the end of every leg day the reason why i did it at the end of leg days is because i wanted to get all of my like work out the way i wanted to get all my like very big lower body demanding work out the day out, out of the way so if i did it like before a leg day or i don't know midweek like halfway in between leg days I'd create more leg recovery that I'd have to separate from my leg training. So it'd just be a nightmare. So I just got it done all in one go. And what do I think that HIT has a benefit for? I do think that HIT does potentially tap into some stubborn body fat just because of the way that it's like a very novel stimulus for the body to try and adapt to. And if you're not already adapted to HIT and you chuck it in right at the end, I do think that it can give that little novel stimulus to fat loss and aid you in getting those more stubborn areas lean. Because at that point, you're doing everything. You have to play the joker. And the joker, in my opinion, is HIT. So I'd add it in right at the end and I wouldn't do it too much. Um, I was doing it twice a week at the end of both lower body sessions. There's a few people that anecdotally get very, <clears throat> get very, very dug out and lean on HIT. And that's Brian Whitaker and Ben Howard. They both really are big advocates of HIT on a bike or um, the assault bike or whatever. And I was reading a lot of like Brian's posts. I was 
reading a lot of old forums where like UK natural muscle, where Ben was logging all of his preps. And I saw him like every time doing hit, every time doing hit. So I just added it in. And I do think that it definitely brought my lower body, which was stubborn, as you'll all know, it brought it in fairly significantly over, over a fairly short time period. Now, this will have obviously been through the added expenditure and this time spent in the deficit. But I also think that it just just just, just does play a role. Um, the novel stimulus of expenditure, the approach of like coming off the gas and then going hard, the approach of doing it at the end of a leg day, I just think that really tops you out in terms of getting those areas that little bit leaner. And that's just anecdote. It's just anecdote. Um, I don't have a lot of... I mean, there was actually a lot of research at some point. Um, Lane Norton actually brought out quite a lot of it. I don't know whether he actually was part of it, but he published... He, um, public site uh, he made it public basically in terms of like making people know that this was the thing the hit was better for muscle retention and i i i don't agree with that fully because and i think people have veered away from that because it is so demanding that if you all your expenditure was through hit you would all indefinitely lose muscle because it's so demanding to recover from a hit and i wouldn't be surprised that if your leg training went significantly backwards if all you did was hit so I'd say a maximum of two sessions a week. I think that would be a really good approach. And just see how you recover from it. If you can't recover from it, obviously pull it down or pull it back. Um, or pull it out completely. The, the main thing is that you're retaining as much strength and muscle mass, therefore, in your leg sessions. So, But I do think HIT definitely plays a pivotal role in getting contest lean. So that's my opinions on that. Next question. So in an upper-lower split... Um, where would you place an RDL? Uh, obviously, consideration, considerations for the crossover into other sessions. So, in my opinion, this is a really good question, by the way. So, I would not be RDLing on the upper day because indefinitely your split is going to look like an upper followed by a lower or a lower followed by an upper. So, if you were doing any form of lower body training, very systemically demanding, some of your hamstrings are going to be used, even if they're not used directly. They might be used indirectly in a, in a lower body session that you're not RDLing. So you're going to not place it on an upper day. You're going to definitely place it on a lower body day. So how would that work? So let's say you have four sessions a week. You have one upper lower, one upper rotation and, sorry, you have two upper body rotations and two lower body rotations. One of the lower body rotations would be more heavily quad focused. So you'd have your hacks, your leg extensions, your leg presses with a narrow stance, your sissy squats, your Bulgarian split squats with a narrow stance, etc., etc. That or your lunge variation with a narrow stance, etc., etc. So that would be one day. And then the other day you would place either, like you could even have both a conventional deadlift and an RDL on the same day. So you could do like, for example, one or two sets of a conventional or sumo deadlift, follow that up with a RDL variation, whether it be dumbbell or barbell, or a banded uh, barbell RDL, whatever, hip banded to increase glute activation, whatever you wanna do, that's what I would place it. So like lower lower A or lower one would be quad focus, lower B or lower, um, lower, <coughs> lower two, would be more hamstring focused that's where i'd place it so then obviously you've got to just factor in you know how are you recovering from that are you feeling fresh enough in your hamstrings from maybe the indirect work that you've got on at lower a to be fresh enough for lower b um, and you just got to play about with it until you find something that works appropriately 
So yeah, that's what I would say. Obviously, take in, take on board the the crossover. Be prepared to make changes if you need. But that's what I would say in terms of how you situate the RDL. Cool. So next question is how would you re? I oh, say refeed days after seven weeks of diet dieting independently from leanness or is that a factor okay i'm not really sure what you mean fully by that question because it doesn't really make sense but i'll cover it anyway and i'll take on board what i think of the question so like for example so you're saying do i need a refeed after seven weeks of diet even if i'm not lean enough for a refeed so i personally think that this is very very much dependent on the goal so what is the goal of your current diet are you looking to just lose fat to get ready for a holiday are you looking to lose fat to get lean for a show what is the goal of the diet if the goal is getting show ready then the apps like one of your pivotal roles in the refeed is not just seeing how you look cosmetically but it's retaining some degree of performance so if we're trying to retain some degree of performance in this refeed approach then you absolutely have to put them in, I would say probably after two months of dieting, usually is where I'd put a refeed in, but it does definitely depend on your leanness. It also depends on like how your body weight is responding. So let's say you're just losing super consistently and you're not seeing sort of any signs of like dietary fatigue kicking up really, really high and excessive water retention and cortisol rising as a result of the dietary stress. If you're not seeing any signs of that and you're just cruising through fat loss, why the hell would you add something that's going to take away from your time spent in a deficit? Like the whole goal is to get fat off in a diet. So if the fat is coming off fine and you're you're like you're not having to make many changes, you're not having to rely on any like crazy low calorie diet or anything like that, then there's no re no, no reason for you to add a refeed. You know, I think a lot of people use the refeeds as an excuse just to eat more when they really don't need it. I don't need that refeed that much. So only add in a refeed when you definitely need one. And that that's that's comes down to all of the things that I've just covered. It comes down to body composition, it comes down to the goal, it comes down to adherence, it comes down to how you're responding. You know, all of these things factor it in, make sure that you understand whether the refeed is appropriate or not to this specific phase. So that's what I think that. Uh so next question on show day steps as usual or chill and as little movement pump session on show morning so steps wise you do not want to be doing steps on show day the whole goal of the show day is to be relaxed as possible and keep your feet like up keep your feet up not necessarily raised i don't think that's going to make a difference but just keep them off the floor off movement if you're walking around all day on show day i think you're gonna Definitely create one added stress because trying to get in your steps on show day is just not necessary. I do think that going for a light walk in the morning or doing some pump work is going to be a good thing. Why? Because I think body temperature plays a big role in your look. So if you're very, very cold all the time in the morning of the show day, I don't think you're going to start to switch on the delivery of blood flow and the delivery of nutrients to the or to inch get to get them intramuscular so let's say you've had really really like a high carb day or a loading day on on the show day um or pr prior to the show day you really need to think about how you're delivering that food and if you're not doing anything to deliver it so whether that's posing whether it's going for a light walk getting a blood getting blood flow getting heart rate up getting body temperature 
or doing some pump workout in the hotel gym or like going to a gym in the morning. I wouldn't go to the gym in the morning, to be honest, because again, it's just an added stress. But whatever you're doing, make sure that you're thinking about how you're making yourself look the best. Now, on show days, mostly for me, what I did was I'd wake up and I'd pose and then I'd also go down to any of the, the hotel gyms or whatever in the morning, get a light pump in my upper body only, excuse me, in my upper body only. I wouldn't create any soreness. I would make sure that I just basically do like supersets, body temperature up and helps starts to help the delivery process of the carbohydrates that I'm going to have on that day. Uh, some people may respond well or better to just sitting down and just not doing anything. I personally don't have many of my clients do that because I do think that movement and some delivery of blood flow is an important thing on the show day itself. But to answer your question, I would not be doing steps on show day. I would just be cracking on with resting, relaxing, um, keeping yourself occupied with, I don't know, getting food ready, chatting to people at the show and just getting a fucking head in the game. Because that show day is like pivotal in terms of your mindset. Like if you go on stage and you're worried about, you know, the fact that you didn't hit your 10,000 steps or you're stressing out about something, you're not on that, you're not in that mode to like go and fucking crush it, which you absolutely have to do. Like I've talked about this before, you absolutely have to have your head on when it comes to getting ready to get on stage. Like this is your your moment that you've been working for for so long. You, you have to have your head in a place where you're, you're going on stage to compete. Like, I think a lot of people go on stage and they think, oh, I'm just displaying. You're not displaying. You're competing. You're, you're trying to beat people here. So you have to look, one, you have to look like you want it. And two, you have to, dis like, you have to make sure that you're trying to outpose people, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's hitting a pose better, whether it's making sure that you're in the right position, whether it's making sure that, you know, other people aren't getting into poses faster than you. This is not just displaying on stage. It's not It's not as simple as that. Like everyone says oh, the work is all done. The work is kind of all done, but you still have to compete. This is the day of competition. You have to pose well. You have to look like you want to win. The work is not all done yet. No way. So just make sure you're in a position to get the work done when it comes to show day because the work is very much not done uh, when it comes to the show day itself. Okay, so next question comes from Robert. Is there a point in an improvement stage where you know you are ready to step on stage again? Almost definitely not. Um, in, in terms of like when you know, yeah, you just really like when you're obviously in an off-season phase, you're never going to look the way that you're going to look when you've dieted down and you've got all the body fat off. Like obviously you'll look a bit bigger in clothing. You'll look maybe a bit bigger in some poses but you don't know where the muscle mass has gone. Like you just, you don't know until you get all the body fat off again. Um, so I think that's why taking two, three year off seasons where you absolutely know that you have gained some tissue and your logbook has told you so, then you know that you're probably ready to compete again. Now, another thing that for you, like Robert specifically, you need to be aware of is that you're very young. You know, you've, you've competed as a teenager, you've done fantastically well, won a British title. But you've also got the fact that a lot of these years when you're, you've been dieting are some of your primary years for growth. And that, that's not just from like a, 
well, it's like not just from a physical perspective, but from a physiological perspective. You know, like you're at peak levels of testosterone or should be, and you probably got to a stage very much like me when my teenage years where you probably went to the stage of like if you were to t- take a blood test and get t- testosterone back, you were probably like in, in, in hypergonadal, which is no good to spend a lot of time there when you're young because you will affect some pretty important things when you're in your adult phases. So for you, some of your basic feedback will be, you know, how how are you starting to feel at, at higher body weights? Are you starting to feel like sex drive is returning? Are you starting to feel like normalized sleep, normalized uh, sort of energy throughout the day? Um, are you feeling any huge lump, like hit huge um, uh, drops off in energy or anything like that? Um, you really need to be super, super aware of all these things because that's going to dictate physiologically whether you're ready to prep or not. And that's something that I get with all my younger competitors. I'm like, okay, how are things feeling? You know, uh, how is everything, you know, from a physiological perspective? And their feedback on that, obviously, I trust. And if it all comes back very, very, very good from sort of their general feedback, then I won't request any blood work. But if we do get some signs of, okay, we've got something going on here that potentially needs to do some digging with, we'll get blood work done, we'll look at it, and sometimes we've got to the point where we're like, oh, okay, like this is why, this is why a lot of these things have been going on, um, and, and this is something that absolutely needs to be fixed. <clears throat> so I, I would just say, you know, just be very much aware of your your health markers, not just your performance or muscularity-based markers. Those are super duper important when it comes to making sure that you're ready to get back on stage. But in terms of my point that I know I'm ready, I've set this two years, and if all goes well for the rest of this year, the goal very much will remain as 2020. But if if I feel like at the end of 2020 I want more time off, I'm not afraid to take it. So if if I want to compete in 2021, I'll do it. You know, if I'm not happy with where I'm at, if I've I don't know touch wood I don't, but if I have like a niggle or or a larger injury that I can't don't really feel like I can represent my best with. I'm not going to compete. I'm not going to compete until I'm my best. That's absolutely it, bottom line. I'm not happy doing a prep until I'm like ready, 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 ready to go, you know? So that's my thoughts. Rigby, so how important is it to reverse diet post-show? So it really depends as to what you mean by reverse diet. Now, the old age, not old age, but the previous thoughts on reverse dieting in terms of like adding a very very minute amount of food per week is not a good idea because you're going to be in a position where you essentially just prolong the diet you're going to take so long to get even to maintenance by trickling up your food by 10 grams of carbs a week Mm. you're going to be like oh my god i'm like you know i'm i'm gaining I, i i don't know i'm gaining fullness or i'm uh, gaining muscle and I'm staying leaner and I'm like, or, or I'm getting leaner or I'm like losing body weight. The whole goal post show is not to lose any more body weight. You need to gain body weight. And you, if you're contest lean, which you, you are, you know, you won your show, you absolutely need to gain body weight. And it needs to be a fairly decently fast process in the initial phase. You need to get your calories up. You need to get your calories up beyond maintenance. You are not, the goal of post diet is not to maintain. If you're maintaining, you're doing a really, really poor decision there. Um, that's going to be something that will hold back all the physiological processes that need to start repairing themselves from the diet and all the metabolic adaptations will just stay and hang around for way too long. And you'll get to a point where you feel pretty shit for a pretty long time period. So if you want to start feeling good as fast as you possibly can, get your calories up, 
get into a surplus and get gaining. And that really revolves around, you know, a, a probably over the course of the first few weeks, something like a, a five pound gain over a couple of weeks, lots of intramuscular glycogen there, restocking things, you'll already feel very, very, very good off of that. And then probably from that point onwards, you can look to a slower rate of gain. But the first like two to three months needs needs to be fairly fairly rapid in terms of getting some body weight back on, feeling good again, and not hanging around too lean. You know, the amount of people that you see hanging around too lean, are, are the are all of those people just don't grow for very long um, in terms of like getting back to where they need to be to start growing. So if you want to grow well, you want to add muscle, get yourself back in that surplus and be confident doing it. But equally, don't fuck it all up in the first few weeks. Like five pounds, cool. Twenty five pounds, not fucking cool. Like that's not cool. Like you'll go into the gym and people won't recognize you, and that's not nice. Number one, you probably will lose all motivation to train because you'll look at yourself in the mirror and you won't like the way that you look, and you'll think that you know just bodybuilding isn't for you anymore, which is not um, at that stage because you've really fucked it. And like it's just like it's a very frustrating process because everyone will do this at least once like I've done it I've done it when I've you know screwed up a post-show post-show period it's not been recently it was like my first prep um I added way too much body weight in a very short period of time and from bad foods and just like not the bad foods are the the culprit but the food the relationship with food at, at that point is is pretty poor um and I really lost a lot of motivation out of it so if you want to maintain your motivation, then don't add a load of body weight straight away because your your motivation will indefinitely dip quite significantly. So yes, make sure that body weight is is trickling up at a, at a decent pace, but not super fast and make sure that your relationship with food is put first. And I think by not binging, you're going to improve your relationship with food because the moment you start you know, eating loads of crap is the moment you start to really sort of not have a knock-on effect for your relationship with food for the rest of your off season because you'll just view it as something that is negative whereas you know going out for a meal enjoying meals with your friends and family is a positive thing so i'd say hold off going out you know everyone will want you to go out for a meal post show like you know all old friends that didn't talk to you for your entire prep will come back and say oh my god you can go out now and let's go out drinking or let's go out and eat a burger and you know, like save some of those things. Don't do all of them all at once because doing all of them all at once will just lead to a a, a, a significant shit storm in terms of body weight regain. And you'll be in a position where you just don't like it and that will really, really affect things. So yeah, it is pretty important, but as long as it's done correctly in the way that I said. So decent increase in calories, get that body weight up a significant amount in the, in the first few weeks. Um, so for you, someone of your body weight, probably five pounds will be good. Uh, maybe for a lighter female, something like three pounds. Um, just get that body weight initially up and then obviously start trickling it up at a slower rate, maybe 0.5 pounds, one pound per week for a little bit. And then again, it can slow even more. So with the length spent in the deficit in a surplus, you can just start to taper off the amount of body weight that you're gaining uh, per week. So that's that. Justin asks, or Jason, whichever one you call yourself. <laughs> so dealing with clients with an illness uh, during prep. So obviously it depends as to how severe the illness is. So if it's something that's going to limit them for any longer than two weeks, you've probably got to either push the show back or pull the plug. Depends as to when you can compete and how much time you have. But... I would say that, you know, if it's something like a cold or a flu, 
then taking days off to fix it as soon as possible is probably going to be pretty key because what a lot of people do is they're like, I cannot take days off. I cannot stop training. I cannot stop doing cardio. I have to keep going. And that's the point at which you you screw yourself up pretty badly because you'll prolong the illness and you have more bad sessions. You'll have more bad cardio sessions. You'll have worse and worse and worse sleep and everything just goes downhill pretty fast. And that is where maybe in a two-week period, you lose muscle mass that could have been retained on stage. So my my perspective is that, okay, you're, you're sick. Let's cut off everything, if we've got the time, that's suppressing your immune system. Cardio, none of it. Steps, bring them to baseline, but try and get them done in a very sort of calm, efficient manner. Get out for some fresh air kind of thing. Food, maintenance. Don't drop body weight whilst we're sick. Just try and maintain, and especially if we've got enough time, this will be okay. This will recover you faster. Maintain body weight. And then, hopefully, you've taken two to three days off the gym. You're recovered. You're rested. Back into the gym. Back into the deficit. Slowly bring back cardio. And then, with regards to training, slowly enter, uh, re-enter sessions. So, don't go in and try and hit a new volume PB. Don't go in and increase work sets. Don't go in and try and catch up on what you missed. Just go back into your normal sessions, your normal rest days, your normal split, and your normal routine, and don't do anything different. And also try to keep maybe a few more reps in reserve in the first few sessions to bring down the, you know, the the the, the nervous system taxing part of going to pure failure. Um, because again, that's going to suppress your immune system even further, and you're probably likely to get ill again. So yes, that's what I would say. That's pretty much like a bulletproof plan for prep with illness. Alrighty. In terms of uh, the next question, so using a hex bar for deadlifting, obviously this is going to make it more quad dominant because just the way that you're going to be lo- uh, moving the bar off the floor is going to be more quad dominant. The range is going to be less. So I just bear in mind that if you want to get the glute ham and sort of more upper back benefits of a larger range and also you know pulling off the floor with a standard bar then it depends what your goal is like if your goal is using that movement for maybe a bit more quads if the goal is to maybe work around an injury that is promoted by pulling off the floor with a standard bar then a hex bar could be a good replacement but it's not something that i ever really program for clients you know unless we've got an injury that we're trying to work around or you know something's up with their current training i won't be programming a hex bar deadlift Favourite UKDFBA show for the atmosphere? I would say, obviously, the, the finals have the best atmosphere because there's the most people there. But other than that, I'd say they're all amazing. Like, there's not one show that isn't, that's worse than the other in terms of the qualifiers. The qualifiers are all great. So if you're competing this year and you're trying to select one that's the best in terms of atmosphere, just do any. They're all good. George, one thing that you wish you knew when you started coaching. So, this is interesting. This is one that I'm sort of having to think about a little bit. One thing that I wish I'd thought, I wish I'd knew when I'd started coaching would be, I think, honestly, the, the, the thing that I mentioned previously would be the loneliness aspect of online coaching. So, I, I, I just think that I didn't really understand like how it would feel to just be on my own for the majority of the day. 
um, and not have any work colleagues or people to chat to. Like the one thing that I loved about working in the studio was like every morning we'd, you know, finish with our PT clients and then most of us would like go upstairs and like eat or whatever and we'd just have a chat and, and that would be really, really good. And obviously not having that would, it just makes things feel different. So I think the one thing that I, I wish I knew was the, the loneliness the loneliness aspect of it, especially when like bodybuilding, you're not always surrounded by a lot of people. Like, you know, especially when you're dieting down for a show, you know, you can't go out that much to have meals. You know, you're limited on some things that you can do in general. And it just kind of, yeah, like just feels a bit lonely. So that's one thing that I wish I knew. Another thing actually is just like, I don't, I don't not like this, but I would make people aware that the workload is, if you're successful, is very high, and you have to be prepared to be super consistent with that. You have to be prepared to like put your head down and get to work when it comes to the amount of stuff that you have to do to keep the business running. Um, you obviously got to be prepared to you know, either get someone to do your accounts or do your own accounts and be tracking everything you're earning. And it's, it's you know, being self-employed is, from that perspective, like a little hard and it's a little difficult and it's something that'll chuck you in the deep end when you're young. So that's, if anything, just, some, just like not one thing that I wish I knew, but it's one thing that I would say to people that are starting out that should they should know because it's something that's pretty pivotal in terms of how long you're going to last can you put the work in? Do you really have a super passion for this? If you do, then you'll probably get along fine. Um, if you don't have enough passion, that will rub off very fast and you'll be at a point where you're going backwards before you've even moved forwards. So just be just be mindful of that. How to calculate rest day calories. So very simple in terms of like how I'd calculate rest day calories. I, I just respond with body weight. So if your if your calories on a rest day are giving you the 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 goal of whatever body weight goal you're trying to achieve so that let's say you know you're trying to get your body weight up and over the course of the week inclusive of your rest days your body weight is going up by the amount that you want and you're recovering well your rest day calories are fine let's say you're trying to diet down if your body weight is coming down by the amount you want per week and those rest day calories are equated into that you're doing your job that doesn't mean that the acute rest day is causing what we want. So after a rest day, you drop because we know that body weight fluctuates by so many different things. But if over the course of the week and your average, so your average inclusive of the rest days is going down or going up, you know, retrospectively, then you are doing your job and the rest of the calories are fine. So yeah, just respond with body weight. Don't be stressed out about using any sort of like crazy, crazy like calculations just respond with what your body weight is doing and obviously respond with your recovery as well. Next question is, is longer with a slower rate of loss always the best way for preps? How long is the ideal prep? Good question, Callum. So the research that's been done on losing body weights and losing body fat and retaining maximal muscle will suggest that losing any more than 1% of your body weight as a natural especially, it just doesn't make sense. Like the favor of muscle retention over actually just like fat loss is getting weaker and weaker and weaker as you start to lose faster and faster and faster. If you think about it, it makes sense because the faster you lose, the propensity for 
you to lose performance is much greater. Uh, the faster you lose, the more likely you're going to get into a position where you are on very low calories at some point and you have to pull extremely hard to get ready and you're having to do extremely high levels of expenditure. So the amount of dietary stress is ginormous. So the look, the actual cosmetic look of your physique will be affected by the uh, the stresses that you're placing upon your body. You may actually see a lack of response after a certain time period and you've also got hardly anything to pull from. So let's say instead of doing a 20, let's say like take George, like George Osborne for example, instead of doing a 24 plus week prep, we let's say we did a 12. So we did a 12 week prep and he has 35 pounds to lose. The amount of deficit that I'd have to create in week one would be fucking huge and he'd be massively hungry massively stressed out like like george like george would explode george like anyone would explode in that amount of a deficit um his performance would go to absolute shit and it would basically be like a 12-week mini cut which is no good for muscle retention and the look would be awful he'd look fat he'd also look soft and it just would not be great so a longer prep allows for more muscle retention a longer prep allows for potential diet breaks and retention of performance and reduction of diet stress as a result. Um, a longer prep allows for you just generally more sanity. And, you know, that that is really the main thing when it comes to you know, setting out the length of the prep is like, you know, you're going to get to the finish line without being a complete and utter wreck, which you see with a lot of people that do very, very short preps. Obviously, the length of preps, you were like, how long is the ideal prep? It depends on your start point. So most people's start point will be like 30 to 35 pounds above stage. And, you know, actually, George asked one of his questions was, um, would I do the same prep that I did last time? I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that 40 pound prep again because losing that amount of weight in one go is not only stressful, but it's also very, very knackering. Like, Losing that amount of weight with no real diet breaks or time away from a deficit and just losing that amount of weight in one big slog is bloody hard. And it's not, I don't think, the most efficient way to do it. So I would say, let's say a 25-week prep with 20 or 20 so pounds to lose, that would be pretty much picture perfect in my opinion. Um, 20 to 25 pounds to lose, 25-week prep, pretty, pretty gold. Um, for, for, for a natural athlete at least uh, obviously you know with assistance you can obviously at the end lose really really fast if you add in fat burners etc but we don't have that to play with we don't have that joker to play with obviously we have the ability to use you know lower stimulatory fat burners like your himbean and caffeine and things like that but we don't have those wild cards to put in when the going gets tough and we're not ready you know we have to sort of just get ready ourselves um with no assistance that's the goal and at the end if we're not ready we can't just chuck in something like that to get ready so giving ourselves like plenty of plenty of time is definitely something that's like a requirement for pretty much everyone so yeah i'd say it's like 25 week prep 20 to 25 pounds to lose that would be picture perfect if you could get that a lot of people don't have that you know i, I i'll try with clients to get them in a position where we're starting really really well but it doesn't always happen. You know, it doesn't always happen. So another question 
uh, from Pablo, rest time between sets and exercises. So I think I may have covered this one before, but essentially as long as we need. Um, we're going to be taking longer on compounds than we are on isolations. Uh, we're going to be trying to achieve more blood flow, more metabolites on our rest periods with our isolation work than we are with our compound work because that's the goal with our compound work. The goal is maximum mechanical tension. So if we're looking for maximum mechanical tension, we need to take as much rest as we can to promote the most load on the bar. So that's what I really think there. Christian, a really good question as always and probably one of the last ones that I'll take. And it is on, do you think that you have to push body fat levels beyond sort of the limits to really, really grow? Like, and how many times do you really think you have to do that? So I think that you absolutely have to do this at least once in your training career. You have to get a little bit fluffier than you would normally get in future gaining phases or massing phases just to get that baseline level of tissue on. Now, another reason why I think this is pretty pivotal is that how many people do you see that always stay pretty small that are actually just very weak as well? Like, you know, the, the, the same people that, that like, not, not naming names or not being harsh or anything, because this is their their their, their option, this is what they want to do, this is fine, this is, this is their choice, this is their route, have nothing against it. The YouTubers that lift the same 40 kgs on the incline double press for fucking years and years and years, they always look the same. They're always in very good shape, but they always look the same. Um, because they're always lifting the same load, so they can expect to have the same level of muscle mass. Now, younger people, or people that have never done a significant push-up, will find one thing with this push-up. They are the strongest they ever have been. Like, hands down. I don't care what everyone says, body weight or weight moves weight. So if you get heavier, you are most likely going to get stronger on pretty much everything. There will be some things that, yes, definitely like there's a point at which you know you're a point at which you don't really want to gain much more weight like for me above 190 i don't think really makes sense to go above 190 i don't think that i'll gain any more strength out of going above 190 and i think that'll actually cause a detrimental effect on my ability to progress even further but at 190 i'll be pretty strong i know that for sure and i know that my bench press will be the strongest ever I know that the density that will be showing in my pecs as a result of being strong on the bench press, the incline hammer strength press, the high incline double press, etc. You know, the, the like for me, like in prep, like the 35s felt heavy on uh, the high incline double shoulder press. And I don't, I don't lose a lot of strength in prep, to be honest. I don't lose a lot. I retain a lot of strength. Um, but they felt super heavy. And now they're, down, now they're like back off sets for like 12, 11, 12 reps. Uh, and I, I know that within every single push-up you do, the, the 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 amount of times you have to go to these sort of like upper limits of body fat becomes less and less and less because it becomes less and less favorable. Like for a master's competitor doing this big push-up, it's just going to make their prep really hard. But I think most individuals younger should do this big, big push-up, really see where their potential lies, really see where their physique can go to and be very, very analytical, like fuck the scale be taking photos very frequently because a lot of people just back out based on the scale you know and and it's the same for me like you know if i i'm saying 190 but if i look great at 190 what do you think i'll do do you think i'll diet no way like if there's more to be had on 190 and above and i'll i'll look at my photos myself i'll i'll get the opinion of a few other people that i trust 
and then I will assess as to whether I do any more than 190. And I, I, I will if I, if I, if if the opportunity to take that is there, then I will do it. And if that's going to grant me more muscle tissue, of course I'll do it. But people get scared of numbers, man. People get scared of like, oh my god, like no, a female might get scared. I'm above 120 pounds. Who gives a fuck? Like, who gives a fuck that you're 120? You look better than you did at 115. You look. You look, uh, you look more muscular. You look like you're filling out your gym leggings. You're stronger in the gym. Your squats are going fantastic. You know, all of these things. People get scared of numbers. So I, I do really think that this push-up is absolutely pivotal um, in terms of getting to those those upper echelons of muscle mass. And for people that are like very new to, to training or at least hard training and effective training, this initial push-up will be granting you a lot of your initial tissue. Like a lot of it. Um, and that'll be fun. When you diet down, you notice like, whoa, I'm like way more dense than before. The people that have that like soft, immature muscle are always the people that never pushed up. They're never the people that dug, dug like dug deep in their off seasons. And it's, and it's meant to be hard. You know, off seasons are meant to be difficult. A lot of people think, oh, I'm meant to feel fine all the time. I'm meant to feel fresh. I've got loads of calories. Recovery is meant to feel good. I'm meant to not dread sessions. Like there's a lot of sessions that I look at and I write it out in my logbook. I'm like, holy fuck. Like, have I really got to do that today in terms of like either beating a number or the length of the session? I look at it. I'm like, fuck me. This is going to be tough. I have to dig in for this one. And that's what it's meant to be like. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't do that because they're like, the moment it starts to get tough, they're like, oh, okay, it's too tough. This is an off season. It's meant to be easy. Fuck that. That's why you don't look different when you get back on stage or it's why don't why why you look the same all year round. So, you know, that's my answer to the question. As always, Christian, uh, I know that you're, you'll like some of my answers. So I try to go off in as many productive tangents as possible. And uh, besides that, we need to get in a session soon. <laughs> So, Alistair, how would you adjust training or diet for a client during Ramadan? So, this actually is coming up for one of my clients. He's actually in uh, prep. So, it's coming up for him. And unfortunately, we just got to work around it as best as possible. Now, obviously, their eating window is very small. Um, and obviously, this is going to affect sleep. They're going to have to train in the night as well at a 24-hour gym. And they're going to have to have two meals, pretty much, with the way that they can eat. So those two meals have to be as dense as possible and have to be as high in protein as you can possibly manage. So let's say, you know, you had two meals, like it might end up being like at least 50 grams of protein both, but probably closer to 100 grams of protein in both to hit his protein target. Um, and then that's pretty much it. And then training wise, obviously just being really cautious and giving me feedback as to how he feels, whether he can get in a good session or not. Um, is going to be pretty key but ideally he's going to get in all his normal sessions just in a 24-hour gym um, so he can train during the night so he, he's actually got food there which is obviously the time period that you're allowed to eat because throughout the day it's not worth training on on fumes so that's the plan that we've got steps wise we'll just respond as to, to, to what we need to do whether the body weight is is doing what we need or whether it's you know, going up or down or whatever, you know, we need to obviously be very much controlled in that fashion. Um, but that's really sort of the approach that I'm having, you know, he's training in the night, he's eating in the night. Um, and, uh, you know, throughout the days, he's, he's, you know, he's just, he's resting up. Um, and that's, that's really it. So yeah, obviously it's big adjustments, but yeah, it's like, 
you've got to do the do. Um, this is a religious event. You've got to stick to it. Um, Brendan, so thoughts on animal or beef protein powders such as MR, such as MRE light from Recon One. I don't have anything against these. I don't. I think they can be absolutely fine. It's obviously adding a, a bit of variety. Funnily enough, I used to have Carnivore from uh, Muscle Meds because I used to find that any concentrate blend would flare out my skin pretty badly when I used to have pretty bad skin when I was younger. So I actually went and used Carnivore, which is a beef protein isolate from Muscle Meds, because uh, partly because Kai Green used it, of course. But I just, yeah, I got on really well with that, actually. And I recommended it to a few friends, and they really liked it, too. Um, so, you know, but obviously now I haven't used that at all. I just use isolates, which, again, are, are lactose-free, which I tend to just get on better with. So I use mainly isolates. And I use um, concentrates now and again, but I try and stick to primarily isolates if I'm using whey. But my, my, my favorite protein blend will be an isolate. But uh, I think beef and uh, animal animal proteins, or even vegan proteins, can add a nice, uh, a, a nice change of variety within within already a, a very structured diet. So that's actually a good question. Yeah, good question from James here. So I answered the one from George, which is the one above it, and I'm also like. I'm, I'm like, literally, I'm not even halfway through the questions here, and I'm at an hour, so this is the last one that I'll take, and then, again, guys, if, if you want to sort of get in more questions, then, um, absolutely, like, next time, just log your question again, try and be quick with it, um, the quicker you are, the better, because I'll, I'll take them from the bottom up, basically, yeah, the bottom up, um, and, uh, so, yeah, I'll answer one more, and we'll leave it there for this week, so, why are some people's logbook numbers not reflecting in their density? Really good question here from James. And it's not, so he, James is a client of mine. Of mine and, it, and it really shows in his physique. Uh, like he, he, he's pulling fantastic numbers. He's benching 120 for reps. And he's squatting like, to be fair, the squats are paying off in his leg development. And his density is absolutely there in his quads. But his upper body is not as dense as you would expect for the numbers. It's just not there. Now, number one, and I know this isn't a problem with James because I've seen his lifts, is execution. So if you're executing loads that are, if you're executing poorly with loads in your logbook that are pretty high, significant numbers and good numbers for your body weight, then that's why you won't have the density because your execution is off. But this isn't the case with James. So the other thing we have to consider is obviously like just actual like response. Like everyone's ability to respond from weight training is different. So some people will be like hyper responders and, you know, I've had some general population clients that were like, you know, get under a bar and even submaximal loads and they'll just like blow up and they'll just respond just like that. So some people's response is super, super fast and super, super quick and they're very, very good responders. Some people just don't respond and that's not maybe the case for you, James. You just maybe need more time because age is a huge factor as well. So Age is a massive factor on muscularity in terms of the density of the muscle because that comes down to muscle maturity, like the amount of layers and layers of, of tissue and, and slabs of muscle that you're, you're basically packing on top of one another. And that creates that dense look when you diet down. Obviously, body composition as well. Being at higher ends of body fat is going to hide density. So you could be pretty strong, but your density would be hidden by body fat, and especially body fat that's stored 
like less favorably so if you have like for example some people's backs are covered by a lot of body fat that hides density uh for example some people's chests like my chest looks horrendous in my off season because it's just hidden by a lot of body fat like i can pinch body fat on my on my chest you know being able to pinch body fat means that there's a, you know there's a decent amount there you know i can pinch body fat on my chest but I can barely pinch body fat on my erectors, barely. Like I can barely grab anything. I can grab a bit on my hips. I can grab a fair amount on my midsection. Um, not a huge amount, just a similar to my chest. But that shows that if I'm grabbing a similar amount of body fat, if I was doing calipers, if I'm grabbing a similar amount of hit on my chest than I am on my hips, it's probably gonna be fairly significant in terms of covering up density. Um, the the uh, like the, the the final thing I I guess is that you know that exercise is just not yours. It's just not an exercise that's actually doing you any good, and that really comes down to like how you feel internally when you're doing the exercise. So let's say you're doing a bench and you just don't feel it in your chest, uh, but you've got really good bench numbers. That's because over the years you've just been really really efficient at bench pressing, and it's not actually paid off whatsoever in your chest development because you've just got really efficient at bench press and it's not the exercise that's building your chest so rotation of exercises is pretty key when you know that something's not building a body part but yeah first things first execution then response then obviously making sure that the exercise is fixing is, is sorry is fitting you as an individual very well so i'm going to leave that there guys uh we come to you know an hour and five minutes here if you've stayed for this long i bloody love you you're awesome thank you very much for listening um again as always if you could share me on your story on your instagram stories uh if we could try and get as many likes on 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 the youtube video that'd be fantastic it just does me a favor in terms of pulling more people into the podcast and getting more subscribers like i think i'm pretty close to 5,000 subscribers on here now so be awesome if i could get some more in and uh means that i'll just continue doing doing the do with regards to putting out the podcast so i really appreciate you guys tuning in um, as always, leave any comments or, or thoughts below in the comment section. Feel free to suggest uh, ideas for future videos. I know that someone suggested a full day of eating, which I may do at some point. But yeah, feel free to put anything in the comment section on YouTube or message me on Instagram if you've got any ideas or you've got any comments on what I said. And I appreciate you guys watching as, as always. And I'll, I'll be speaking to you next Thursday when we do Solo 18. All right, guys. Speak to you soon. Bye.